And where is it now? Alpha Centauri. Oh, I was hoping you'd say Uranus. I, I was setting you up for that one, Dana. Do I try it again? Sure. Where is it now, Dana? Uranus. <laughs> <laughs> that joke never gets old. Welcome to Damn It, Jim, the podcast. It's a fun and fascinating exploration of Star Trek, the original series, hosted by Dan Calzretta and Dana Smith. This week, we're discussing Season 2, Episode 10, Journey to Babel. Dan. Yes. <laughs> Did you forget what you were going to say already, Dan? We're not even like 10 seconds into the podcast. I was just waiting for you to say hello or good evening or... Hey, how's, how's it going, Dana? <laughs> <laughs> good. As I always say, anytime we get a chance to talk about Star Trek, it's a good night. Yeah, well, at least for one of us, that's great, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Dan, last week we discussed metamorphosis. Yep. Some have said it is a romantic episode, while others agreed with us that the alien looked like a bowl of jello, and that kind of threw them off a little bit. Jello can be romantic, right? I mean, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, I could think of it uh, many ways, but... Uh... <laughs> Do you think Jello would be more romantic or pudding? I'll do a study this weekend and let you know. So, <laughs> <laughs> I need to point out that we both did like the episode. Not everybody agreed with us, as usual. I mean, was there anyone who just like hated the episode? No, I think one person on Facebook said, not my favorite. That was their whole comment. I mean, that's fair, you know, but I thought it was a pretty good episode. I liked it. Like this episode, I hadn't seen that one in a long time. And so uh, I was really surprised by how much I liked it. So here are a few messages that we got about uh, Metamorphosis. Our friend Mark Haley said uh, in your list at the end, you both agreed the companion was not a supreme being. He says, for your listeners, could you go over again what your definition is of a supreme being? Dan, do you want to get us started on this? Yeah, I actually thought that companion was a supreme being. We did discuss it, but as per usual, our discussions trailed off into some bizarre ramble that was really hard for me to edit. And then it got late and then I just wanted to go to bed. And I think as in another episode, I just said, okay, Dana, whatever whatever you want. Just let's move on. Well, I actually remember the discussion a little bit. Oh, okay. Well, what do you remember? <laughs> that you edited out. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> oh, that sounded, that sounded like a little bit of, uh, like you're angry about that. Oh, no. I love when my good arguments just get thrown on the cutting room floor. But I agreed with you. So you, you eventually got what you wanted. I want discussion and discourse, Dan. <laughs> Okay. So this episode tonight will be eight hours long. <laughs> One of the things that led us to deciding it was not a supreme being was that it became Nancy Hedford at the end and therefore took on human qualities. If it did have supreme powers, it would have taken her over and it would have been able to save her life early on. And it became mortal. Yeah. I mean, I think that was the biggest, that's what I remember being the biggest argument, that it became mortal and then would die. I, I think it could have gone either way, certainly. I mean, we could have said it was a supreme being. We, we called Apollo a supreme being. Apollo didn't really die. Apollo kind of just disappeared into the universe with the other gods. It was implied that they were still there, but not in like corporeal form. So I don't know. I mean, I think you can make the argument either way. And I think we decided to go on the side of not a supreme being. It was a tough call and I could be swayed, but obviously you never came up with an argument good enough to sway me. So. <laughs> <laughs> it was a really good question and something that we debated. Not that our listeners would know because again, it got edited out. <laughs> 
my guess, and I don't really remember because it's been, you know, a whole week, not even <laughs> uh, since I did the editing, that we got off into some ramble and I just couldn't extract us from that. I have no doubt that's what happened. But yeah, great question. Thanks, Mark, for that great question. William Kroll said, I've always enjoyed this episode. Looking forward to the podcast. Thank you, William. Brian Kavanaugh said, a beautiful story. Zachary O'Donnell says, yeah, it's a love story, just like Venom. <laughs> what does that mean? Have you seen the movie Venom? No. What's the movie about? Is it a love story? No, I think that's the point. <laughs> <laughs> Corey Hollowa said, good episode. Lena Sneese said, sad that they turned this great character into an idiot in that TNG movie. Original series Cochran was dignified and the next generation, not so much. That was one of my problems with First Contact was I was waiting for Cochran to be like this stand-up great guy and they turned him in kind of a goofball. So I agree with her. Well, I thought it was interesting in that when we look at back at historical figures, we often have these mythological views of them, like they're perfect and they were, you know, just great, amazing people. I think what the film tried to portray was that Zephyrim Cochran was just this normal human with a lot of human foibles. And even the Next Generation crew could not believe the difference between the historical Zephyrim Cochran and the real Zephyrim Cochran. Uh, Susie Rose said, I love everything about this episode. Joshua Coop said, uh, good episode. And you might remember when I put this out on Facebook or during the episode, I said, wouldn't it be cool if he went and got a beer for her? And Danny Cohen said, the man needs a beer once in a while. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> One of my favorite comments. Dan, did you have any comments from uh, YouTube? Yeah, there are two that I'd like to share, Dana, for the episode Metamorphosis. Moggeridge says, I was laughing so much at the opening with Kirk and McCoy taking the commissioner to bed that I nearly disappeared up my own Jeffrey's tube. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you didn't edit all that out, did you? <laughs> And then finally, for the episode, The Apple, we talked about how much I dislike Gallagher. Remember the guy used to smash the watermelons? Shamrock Particle says, also, along with Gallagher, what if smashing pumpkins stem from this episode? <laughs> I mean, there is a difference between a pumpkin and a watermelon, maybe. A little bit. Shamrock has sent us several uh, very good comments, so keep them coming. Well, thanks for everybody's comments. Let's get on to Journey to Ramble. I, I mean, Babel. Dan, good thing the title wasn't something like Journey to Transmitter. Could easily have been Journey to Schmitter. <laughs> By the way, I, I looked up how to pronounce Babel. I was pronouncing it Babel. Yeah. And then in the episode, they said it a few times in, as Babel. Yeah, I would imagine Babel is spelled B-A-B-B-L-E. Like what we do every show. You'll be interested to know that the uh, way that it's said in the show, Babel, is the way the English pronunciation is, and the Americans would say it as Babel. <laughs> So we start off with Kirk and McCoy preparing to meet the Vulcan ambassador. The Enterprise is playing host to 114 ambassadors and dignitaries. McCoy states that half of them are mad at the other half and all of them touchier than a raw antimatter pile over this Caridian question. I, I don't know what a ant, raw antimatter pile is. Doesn't sound good. No, it doesn't sound good. I think, for example, if you have some really spicy Thai food, I think that's what shows up later. Okay. <laughs> uh. <laughs> 
So there's an announcement that the shuttlecraft is arriving. And it's kind of funny. It's the first time I ever remember hearing the shuttlecraft is arriving with such fanfare. Dana, I have a question for you. How many shuttlecraft are on the Enterprise? I was starting to think there's only one because they're always on the Galileo. Right. I would think there has to be more than one or two, right? Yeah, you would think so. I would think there's got to be like I don't know, four or five. So all these young men in red shirts come marching up and they all have phasers on their hips. And then when they go inside the hangar deck as the shuttle door is opening, they pull out their phasers and hold them across their chest like a salute of some kind or something. But it just seemed weird. It did. I wouldn't feel comfortable with all these guys with their fingers on the trigger of their phasers <laughs> as I was getting off the shuttlecraft. You know, so. Well, they were like an honor guard, so maybe the phasers weren't actually armed. McCoy asks Spock how the Vulcan salute goes, and Spock demonstrates. McCoy comments, That hurts worse than the uniform. Because they had all these dress uniforms on. They're kind of tight collars. McCoy did not like having to dress up, did he? No, he did not. So Sarek exits the shuttlecraft and walks with his wife about 10 paces is behind him, gets to the door where Kirk and Spock and McCoy are, and Kirk introduces Spock and McCoy. It's great acting by DeForest Kelly. He uh, considers doing the Vulcan salute. You can see him kind of look down his hand and start to raise his arm a little bit and then goes back down. You could just see his thought process there. Yeah. I just love that. Sarek introduces his wife. Kirk offers to have Spock take him and his wife on a tour of the ship. But Sarek coldly asks that someone else give them a tour. So Kirk kind of sees what's going on between the two Vulcans, and Kirk suggests to Spock. Mr. Spark, we'll leave orbit in two hours. Would you care to beam down and visit your parents? Captain, Ambassador Sarek and his wife are my parents. Okay, a couple things about this. One, I thought this was fantastic writing on the part of DC Fontana, who wrote this episode, setting up this relationship between Sarek and Spock. However, there's a bit of a hole. Why didn't Kirk know who Spock's parents were? Maybe Spock played it really close to the vest and just never brought up his family history. I mean, that is a totally reasonable explanation, you know, and maybe that's what was going on. Sarek is an ambassador of the Vulcan planet. Yeah. And he's known. Spock never thought, say, oh, yeah, mom and dad are coming up here, you know, because he's the ambassador. So I I've had the same thought. So next thing we hear is the captain's log. We have departed Vulcan for the neutral planetoid codenamed Babel. The Enterprise has been assigned to transport ambassadors of Federation planets to the vitally important council. The issues of the council are politically complex. The passengers explosive. Yeah, really, this is, I'd say, very topical today when there are some countries now trying to get into NATO and the Russians don't want them in. The next thing we see is Kirk is conducting the tour for Sarek and his wife. They enter engineering where Spock is. Mrs. Sarek stops and says to Spock, After all these years among humans, you still haven't learned to smile. Humans smile with so little provocation. Amanda, as we will learn her name is, states that it has been four years since they've seen him. So apparently, Dan, they were not invited to Spock's wedding or they weren't on Vulcan at the time. Well, but now we know why, right? That there's some rift there between Spock and his father. And he's an ambassador, so he's, you know, could have been ambassadoring on some other planet. Spock says that things between his father and he have not changed. Just then, Sarek calls to Amanda, wife, attend. <laughs> Okay, here, Dana, I got a, I got a challenge for both of us here. Probably the same challenge I came up with. Here. Okay, what, what, what is it? I said, Dan, next time you're at some event with your wife, you should throw this line out to her. Wife, attend. All right, here's what we're going to do, Dana. This week, we both have to do it, though. 
Dana, we both have to do this. Otherwise, it's just not going to be good to have one of us in the hospital and not the other. <laughs> so we we need to we need to at some point this week, and it has to be in public, right? Can't just be at home. <laughs> yeah. We have to do it exactly how Sarek does. He kind of raises one hand, puts two fingers up on one hand at about maybe shoulder level, I'm guessing. And he says, wife, attend. And then let's see. We need to record it, actually. That would be the best thing. <laughs> well, I'm sure people will be recording something afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's try it, though. I think it would be a lot of fun. We'll try it and we'll report back at the next episode. Well, if there is a next episode. <laughs> <laughs> Dan, I know what will happen if I say that to my wife. One, if we're out in public and we're away from home, I'll be walking home if I can walk afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure what my wife would do. Probably the same thing. I think there would be, yeah. I think the re the responses by both of our wives would be pretty similar. I can just hear it. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> <laughs> how, how difficult would it be to do a podcast with our jaws wired shut because they've been broken? <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people think that would be the ideal way for us to do a podcast. But... Uh... <laughs> All right. Well, we, we've accepted the challenge, have we? Have we accepted the challenge, Dana? Or are we smart enough to not accept that challenge? Yeah, no, I'm not. I'm not going there. Okay, this is what we'd like to do, listeners. We want listeners to use this line or a modification for whoever your partner is, and then report back to us on what the response was. Now, we are not responsible for any injuries. Divorces. Yeah breakups, anything else. I think just by saying that's that's legally true, so we're not responsible for anything. <laughs> Report back, see what happens. Yeah. I'm going to try it though. I am going to try it. Not in public. Not in public, Dana. I'll just try it around the house. Good idea. Okay. So you're saying you're going to do it. That's what I've heard. That's what our listeners have heard. <laughs> we're holding you to it, Dana. Yeah. I'll record it. <laughs> So Kirk calls Spock over and asks him to explain the computers, Sarek and his wife. Sarek states that he gave Spock his first lesson on computers, but Spock decided to devote his life to Starfleet instead of attending the Vulcan Science Academy. I love this part. We get a lot of backstory, don't we? Oh, man. I, I think it's perfect. And Spock excuses himself after that. And Sarek says he's returning to his quarters and asks Kirk to finish the tour with his wife. <laughs> Kirk's like, okay, well, you asked for it. <laughs> but this scene, in just a couple of sentences, and this is why I think DC Fontana is brilliant, gives us so much information. We know in like two sentences, Dana, that Spock's father, Sarek, is really disappointed that Spock didn't go to the Vulcan Science Academy and instead went into Starfleet. I mean, it's crystal clear, not only in the writing, but in how it's delivered by the actor. Yeah. And then you also have uh, Spock's response, yeah. which is no response, but kind of a look of staring straight ahead, like, here we go again. Yeah. Nimoy was great. Yeah. So Kirk uses this opportunity to ask Mrs. Sarek about the issues between Spock and his father. She says Spock and his father haven't talked in 18 years. Wow. That's a long time. And Kirk says, Spock is my best officer and my friend. I'm glad he has such a friend. It hasn't been easy on Spock, neither human nor Vulcan. At home, nowhere, except Starfleet. Kirk says, I guess Spock and his father disagreed on his choice of careers. And she says, he has nothing against Starfleet. Vulcans believe that peace should not be dependent upon force. 
Kirk suggests that Starfleet only uses force as a last resort. Eh, maybe not so much with Kirk. Yeah, or if the alien is annoying or anything. Yeah, so it's just... <laughs> and Kirk just goes into like every story of every alien he <laughs> yeah. killed, destroyed, well, starting with the salt creature. Let's just start in episode one. Yeah. Just then, Kirk is hailed. He goes to a little computer monitor, and Uhura is on the monitor. She says that they've picked up a communication, but she cannot determine where they came from. Kirk says, continue long-range scanning. So then we cut, and we go to the lounge, and we see assorted aliens talking. Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, Sarek, and his wife are all talking, kind of clustered together. And McCoy asks about Sarek having previously retired. Isn't it unusual for a Vulcan to retire at your age, after all? You're only 102. 102.437 precisely, Doctor. Measured in your years. Sir suddenly gets kind of accosted by this furry pig-faced alien who's named Gav. He's a Tellarite, and he demands to know how Sirik will vote about letting Corridan into the Federation. Sirik says his vote will be heard at the council chambers on Babel. The pig-faced alien gets a little feisty, so Kirk intervenes, says, Gentlemen, Ambassador Sirik is quite correct when he points out that this is not the council chamber of Babel. I'm fully aware that the admission of Corridan is a highly debatable issue, but you won't solve it here. Everyone agrees, and the pig-faced man kind of walks away. Dana, did you notice the two little people with the gold like makeup? They look like these gold-colored aliens. Yeah, they, they came up and got drinks. Yeah, but here's the thing. They come up, and there are these bowls with multicolored cube-looking things. They put those in their glasses, and then they fill the glasses with some kind of liquid. I mean, here's what I think. They listened to our podcast last week. Those look like jello shots almost. Like, they were doing <laughs> jello shots, these these guys. They were way ahead. Yeah, they're they're like, we're going to be here. We're just going to party. Exactly. So here's what Star Trek came up with, right? Universal Translator, which we have now, the Communicator, which is like the cell phone, and Jello Shots. They they came up with all that. Wow. Such forward thinking. And they were getting hammered, these guys. They were getting hammered. I mean, do you see how big those glasses were that they had? Maybe their alien culture could handle it. It just, they did look like Jello Shots to me. At first, I thought they were like little fruits that they were putting in. It could have been. Then I thought they were kind of like, you know, ice cubes. Sarek walks away and McCoy asks Amanda if Spock was ever like a human child. She smiles and says, well, he was fond of a pet sea lot, kind of like a teddy bear. And McCoy seems quite pleased with this. He's all smiles. McCoy gleefully repeats teddy bear. Spock explains, not precisely, doctor. On Vulcan, the teddy bears are alive and they have six inch fangs. That's that's not like any teddy bear I ever had. No, I don't know if I ever had a teddy bear. I had a pet little, like a little stuffed dog. I did have that. Looked like a little bulldog. I had a pet. I had Snoopy. Like a stuffed Snoopy? Yeah. Held it so like his, all the stuffing went out of his neck. <laughs> so he had a very floppy neck? Like <laughs> yeah. But the head and the body were fine because it was just like him in a sitting position. So were you strangling the Snoopy? I mean, what, what made this happen? No, I just kept him kind of in the crook of my arm. All oh, the time. oh, so you're doing a chokehold on the Snoopy? Yeah, no, I was carrying him around as a child would. Doing a chokehold, trying to kill the dog. <laughs> so that explains actually a lot, probably. Well, that's how my dad, you know, held me when he wanted me to be quiet. <laughs> Ooh, we might have a little bit of uh, like a father-son thing we need to talk about here too not only Sarek and Spock no, I'm just kidding about that for the most part so Chekhov hails Kirk and says there is another vessel pacing them Kirk orders yellow alert and asks not to alarm the passengers yeah like the yellow alert going off over the entire ship <laughs> 
<laughs> will not alarm anybody. Yellow alert's just a flashing light, though, right? Yeah, but still, don't you think people would notice it? Hmm, what's that flashing light in the hallway there? They're probably like, ah, oh, just have another drink and shut up. That is a good question. When an alert goes off, we have seen alerts before, red alerts usually, when they're going off over the entire ship. You get the audio and the visual of that, right? Yep. What about a yellow alert? Is there a, there's no audio associated with a yellow alert, is there? I don't think so. I think it's just the flashing yellow light. Yeah. So Kirk and Spock report to the bridge. Kirk goes around and gets reports from everyone. The unidentified ship has not responded to hails. Spock says it's about the size of a scout ship. Spock reports the vessel is changing course and moving toward them at high warp speed. The ship goes flying by them. Uhura reports that Starfleet confirms there is no other authorized crafts in the area. And then Chekhov states that when the Enterprise changed course, the intruder changed course and is pacing them again. Now we we should say Chekhov's hair is totally normal at this point. No wig involved, it seems. Yeah, it's his own hair. Doesn't look great, but it looks a hell of a lot better in that wig. So so back in the lounge, the uh, pigman Gav is drinking Romulan ale as Sarek walks in. So Sarek goes over to the bar and he takes a pill and pours himself a drink. The pigman Gav approaches Sarek, insisting on speaking to him and wanting to know how he'll vote regarding the court and admission. That pig guy was a little bit, you know, obnoxious. Yeah. And I was reading that the mask that he was wearing, the only way he could see was to tilt his head back. People thought that the Tellarites were very obnoxious and looked down on everybody. Yeah. It's all because he couldn't see if he kept his head at normal level. Well, it's clearly a mask too. I mean, the eye holes did not look very real. I mean, it looked like he was wearing a mask. Yeah, but I, I love the snout. I love the the paws or, you know, hooves that he had. Oh, and the, the nails? I mean, that guy looked like he had some weird fungus going. He needed to get those things taken care of. <laughs> well, I'm sure they have a manicurist on the uh, Enterprise, so. Well, they probably do, don't you think? that there, There's got to yeah. be like a barber or some a spa, some place you go get, your, you know, a mani-pedi done. Have you ever had one of those? No, but my wife gets them and she keeps inviting me to go. So someday I will, probably. Here's what you should do. If there's a local community college, get on the list to be a like test subject for the students. And then it's free. Now, there's always the chance, you know, you're going to lose part of a toe or something. <laughs> but I did this. Uh, both at, both my wife and I did this at the local community college. And because I teach there, you know, the beer classes. And so I'm on a mailing list. And whenever they need volunteers, I was like, oh, that might be kind of fun. So I did it once. And, you know, it's all right. And you don't need that pinky toe after all anyway. So it's you don't a... really. I mean, unless there's a very very odd balance that you need to do for some reason. But no, for the most part, you do not need it. My grandfather, no little toes. Really? Yeah, in fact, he had web feet and only four toes on each foot. Wow, I'm, I'm looking at you so differently right now. So <laughs> wondering what else is weird about you. So after being harassed, Sarek finally says he favors Corridan admission. Sarek says Corridan is underpopulated and unable to protect itself from thieves. Gav says, are you calling us thieves? He attacks Sarek, and Sarek just does this kind of like throwing up of his hands. The pig man goes flying back against the wall. Yeah. The laws of physics don't apply in space sometimes, I think, because uh, <laughs> what Sarek did just should not have thrown him back. But anyway. But isn't that, wasn't that meant to imply, again, the strength that Vulcans have? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Kirk comes in and tells him to break it up. Gav starts to exit, turns back to Sarek and says, there will be payment for your slander. And Sarek replies, threats are illogical and payments are usually expensive. I love that line. <laughs> yes, me too, Dana. Because he was really sticking it to Pigman there, wasn't he? <laughs> 
verbally speaking. A security officer walking down the hall finds Gav, the pig man, dead in a Jeffrey's tube. So he calls to the captain in his quarters, and Kirk is shirtless. Yes, we got one, didn't we? And he tells Kirk that the Tellarite ambassador is dead. And should I carve him up for some bacon, or what do you, what do you want me to do with this guy? <laughs> Ham hocks? What do you know? Get him ready for Easter? What are we doing? <laughs> You know what's really good, though, is uh, pork belly. Oh, yeah. I thought you were going to say pickled pig's feet. I've never had pickled pig's feet, Dana, and I don't want to. It was something I think came out of, like the depression stuff because my dad used to eat them. We had a jar. It, was like, it wasn't like a big jar in the refrigerator. My dad thought there was nothing better on a hot day than having a cold beer and non-unpickled pig's feet. I'm down with part of that, half of it. <laughs> and it's not the pig's feet part. Yeah. It's like chewing on a on gristle and, and knuckles. No, no, no. I, why would I do that? Yeah, you come away with little, little tiny chunks of meat. You know, it's just not worth it. And it, it tastes crappy. No, not for me. Not for me. Yeah. Pork rinds too. Not, don't like them. Yeah, pork rinds. I can take them or leave them. But bacon? Oh, man. Yeah. Good pork sausage. Oh, ribs? Oh. Man. I'm getting hungry. Well, that guy could have provided a lot of food for the <laughs> ship, I would imagine. And there was at least two of them on the ships. I mean, they could have a fest. You know, they a could. A feast. Fest of a feast. A feast of a fest. I don't know how you want to say it. <laughs> they could put them on some kind of rotisserie down in engineering. <laughs> Got to make sure you trim all that hair off, though. It's just, that was nasty. Yeah, so. you don't want the hair. Yeah. I mean. Did you ever go to a pig roast? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Our... Uh, Neighbors, when I was a kid, and the mom was from Hawaii, every summer they would do a luau. They would roast a pig. Did they dig a hole and put the pig in there, or was it like on a spit? They had it on a spit over a fire. Yeah, the one I went to, they dug a hole yeah. and put the charcoals or whatever they used in the hole, and then somehow got the pig in there, and, and then they dug it up later. I don't know how it doesn't get dirty, I, or maybe it does, and you just don't eat that part. I don't know. Yeah, I, I went to uh, one in Chicago where they did that. Good stuff. So next uh, thing we see is Kirk, Spock, and McCoy and three security guards. They're all gathered around the body of Gav. McCoy reports that Gav's neck was broken by an expert. He explains that whoever did it knew exactly where to apply pressure to snap the neck instantly. Kirk asks, who would have such knowledge? And after a moment, Spock replies, Vulcans. And he says it is called Talshaya an ancient form of execution. Kirk tells him about the argument between Sarek and Gav, and McCoy says, that makes your father the most likely suspect. And Kirk pushes and asks, could your father do it? And Spock replies, he could, logically and efficiently, if he had a reason. So Spock and Kirk and McCoy enter Sarek's quarters, but Sarek isn't there, only his wife, and she says uh, he might be away meditating. Just then, Sarek enters, and Kirk tells him about the dead Tellarite. Kirk asks where Sarek was in the last hour. Sarek says he was in personal meditation. He says it's a deep personal thing for Vulcans. Amanda says, well, not that deep, really. <laughs> <laughs> and before he can say anything else, he suddenly breaks down in pain, kind of grabs his chest. Amanda says, what's wrong? And McCoy says it seems to be something with his cardiovascular system. And then they're asking McCoy if he's going to be able to help. And he basically says, I don't know. So back on the bridge, Kirk is kind of watching Spock as he walks around. And he looks like he wants to talk to Spock. Spock goes on about the ship that is following them, saying that it is manned. But the hull is too thick for the sensors to penetrate. Well, then how does, how does he know it's manned? Probably by its design. Oh, okay. 
a little bit of a leap there, but uh, that's okay. I'm, this episode's so good, I'm just going to ignore it. Yeah, okay, good. Uhura says she found another transmission. They go to track it, and Uhura says the reception is happening inside the Enterprise. Spock says he cannot decode the message, and it is alien. Dan, isn't everything in space alien? <laughs> <laughs> I would think, like, for the most part, yeah. <laughs> That's a good point. Saying alien, you know, it could be to Spock, humans are alien. Right. Maybe what they meant was it was of unknown alien origin, maybe. I don't know. Alien could also just mean foreign. Could be. Really, I mean, because this episode is so good, all these little things are just journey to quibble instead of journey to babel. <laughs> Kirk wants to know who on board the ship is receiving the message. In sickbay, Sarek is resting as Nurse Chapel takes away the bedpan. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> she was holding the tray, and the first thing I thought was she had a bedpan. <laughs> so in sickbay, Sarek is resting as Nurse Chapel takes away a tray. Kirk comes in the room and asks how Sarek is, and McCoy says it's something like a human heart attack. But without an operation, there's no way for him to know for sure. What kind of fucking medicine do they have in the 23rd century? <laughs> That's a great point, Dana. I had the same thought. Don't they have an x-ray? Can't I mean, they got to actually operate to like just go look around? <laughs> yeah, let me cut open his heart and see if he's having a heart attack. Again, some very minor things in this episode, but that, that was probably the most glaring, I would say, for me. Yeah, I, I thought it was really odd. So Spock asked McCoy about the possible surgery, and McCoy says it's risky for a human, but a Vulcan, it's complicated. McCoy says the procedure would require massive amounts of blood. Chapel says they don't have a lot of Vulcan blood in the blood banks, and Sarek's blood is type T negative. Spock says his is T negative as well, and Chapel says, well, there are some human components to it, and he says he is sure they could filter out the human qualities. Just like through, I don't know, cheesecloth or something? How, how do you do this? Yeah, I'm sure that's it. It's just, you know, a strainer, some kind. Strainer. That's it, yeah. So Spock turns to Chapel and asks for her to pull his medical records. <laughs> I'm sure you're going to say something. <laughs> See, Dana, I'm really trying in this episode to not just jump in with, you know, the yank jokes or... <laughs> Pull this or, you know. She says she's already pulled it several times and is perfectly healthy. <laughs> <laughs> so right after that, in the hallway, we see Kirk is fighting one of the Andorians, the blue guys with the antennae. And the Andorian has a knife, but Kirk is able to keep away from it during the fight. It's, it's actually not a bad fight. There's, I don't, I didn't notice a stuntman for Kirk. No, it was, it was William Shatner the whole time, I think. Yeah. And the Andorian manages to get up and stab Kirk in the back. The Andorian's behind him, and Kirk manages to flip the Andorian over his back. And then he stands up and kicks him in the face, knocking him out. On the intercom, Kirk calls to Spock and tells him he's been attacked and he tries to say something about security and then he passes out. But here's the thing that was interesting to me, Dana, is he reaches behind his back and then he pulls his hand up so the camera can see it and it's covered in blood. How many times have we actually seen blood in Star Trek? Not many, right? No. In sickbay, McCoy says the wound is bad. The knife just missed Kirk's heart. Just then, Sarek takes a turn for the worst. McCoy says he's ready to operate and Spock says his duty to the ship comes first. McCoy says, you can turn the ship over to Scotty. And Spock replies, command requirements do not recognize 
recognize personal privilege. Oh, because he's in command of the ship now because Kirk's been stabbed. Yeah. Later, in Spock's quarters, he's at his computer. Someone rings his doorbell, which is unusual for the Enterprise. Very unusual, Dana. And Spock is kind of hesitant to answer. He doesn't, like, go to it right away. Finally, he says, come in, and his mother comes in. She asks that he turn command over to someone else, and Spock says he cannot. Amanda says, only you can give your father the blood transfusion. And Spock says, I cannot dismiss my duties. And she says, I don't understand. It's not human. These words kind of affect Spock. He asks, how could she have lived on Vulcan for so long, been married to a Vulcan, raised a son in Vulcan, and not understand what it means to be Vulcan? Spock says, what would my father say if I gave up command to help him and risk the lives of the passengers on this ship and risk interplanetary war for one person? She says, I'll hate you for the rest of my life if you stay on this rigid path of Starfleet orders and Vulcan logic. And Spock considers her words and he says, I cannot. And she slaps him. Oh, man. Dana, I watched that several times. I slowed it down as slow as I could get it. I mean, she really hits him. The actress really hits Nimoy in the face hard. Yeah, it was a good slap. She got full palm on there. So in sick bay, Kirk wakes up and wonders why McCoy hasn't started operating on Sarek. I should point out that Kirk is, again, shirtless. Yeah, I mean, he does have kind of a sparkly like tank top kind of thing on that I'm assuming is a bandage. I don't really know. But it kind of looked like something that Miley Cyrus would wear. Maybe that's where she got all of her costumes was uh, from the Star Trek wardrobe department. So does this count then as shirtless if he's got this bandage on? If we're counting ripped and he's not wearing a shirt and that's not a, I mean, a bandage is not a shirt. Yeah, I was counting it too, you know, just to make it clear, but, but it did wrap completely around him. So Kirk tries to stand and McCoy says, you can't stand, you're going to start bleeding again. And Kirk says, he'll convince Spock he's okay. Then once Spock reports to sickbay, he'll turn the ship over to Scotty. And McCoy thinks about it for a moment, then he agrees. Next thing we see is Kirk coming onto the bridge with McCoy close behind. Spock looks at him and says, are you sure you're all right? And McCoy says, I certified him physically fit for command. Kirk gives Spock a smile and Spock agrees and leaves with McCoy. But he's a little suspicious though, isn't he? Kirk tells Uhura to call Scotty to the bridge. Just then the alien ship moves closer and Uhura picks up the transmission again. Then Kirk says, belay that order, cancel bringing Scotty to the bridge. And Uhura says the message is coming from the Enterprise. It's coming from the brig. So Kirk orders security to the brig to search the prisoner. Next thing we see is Spock in sickbay with the transfusion starting. Green blood in the in the tubes. Yeah, it was green, yeah. Kind of like a Kelly Green. Shut him, Bigotti. He must have been Irish. <laughs> there goes our Irish listeners. <laughs> I, I just threw that in for you, Dan. So. I appreciate that. Thank you, Dana. They start the surgery once the sterilization field has been initiated. I like the sterilization field. Yeah, when they do it, the, the lights kind of changed when they did the sterilization field. It was a cool effect, yeah. In the brig, the Andorian is being searched. When the security guard reaches up and touches the Andorian's head, Andorian turns around and pushes the security guard away. He turns to fight the other security guard, and the guard fires his phaser, knocking him out. 
worst fight of all time. Very bad. Yeah. The, the, the pushing the first guy away, the guy like fell over like a breeze knocked him over. Yeah. The Andorian like turned while the other guy is fumbling around with his phaser trying to get it out. It did take him a long time to get the phaser out and shoot him. It did. Yeah. The Andorian could have easily been on top of him, disarmed him, gotten the phaser. Yeah. Wreaked havoc throughout the ship. So taking over the ship, possibly. <laughs> so when the Andorian falls, one of his antennae break and they see something inside of it. Security guard picks that piece up and he goes out and calls Kirk and tells him they found the transceiver. So back on the bridge, Chekhov announces that the alien ship is moving towards them at warp eight and Kirk orders the prisoner be brought to the bridge and go to red alert. So the alien ship comes flying by and rocks the ship. The Enterprise fires its phasers, but they miss. And then we go back to sickbay and we see McCoy and the patients in sickbay as the ship is kind of rocked. So the ship takes another swing at the Enterprise and rocks the ship again. In sickbay, they're rocked. McCoy says, one more shake like that and I'll lose both these patients. Now, did you notice coming out of that sterile field was smoke? Two times in two different scenes, they show the sterile field and there is smoke. It's like McCoy's got a cigarette in there or something. Back on the bridge, we see the alien ship zoom by and rock the ship again. Chekhov reports he has photon torpedoes armed and ready. Kirk orders a widespread. They fire the torpedoes, but miss. The Andorian comes to the bridge with the two security guards. And Kirk looks at him and says, you're not Andorian. And then Kirk orders power out to the starboard side of the ship. And then Kirk asks the Andorian who he is. The Andorian responds, find your own answers. You haven't got long to live. And so Kirk calls him a spy, surgically altered to pass as an Andorian. And the guy just kind of gives him a smug look. So Chekhov reports that they're starting to drift. And Kirk tells him that's okay. The alien ship kind of holds back. And Kirk says, we're dead as far as he knows. Chekhov reports that the alien ship is now moving closer, and Kirk tells him to hold his fire. Because he's pretending to be dead in the water, right? Yeah, and the uh, Romulans had done the same thing, where they released garbage out, including uh, the one Centurion. That's right. They put his body in there, yeah. They could have just put Gav in there and a couple others that they didn't want to deal with and send them out into space. Well, he he was already, you know, in the barbecue, but they could have sent uh, this Andorian guy out there. Yeah, Sarek. Sarek, toss him in there. (laughs) If Amanda keeps bitching and moaning and slapping people, throw her ass in there. (laughs) The little guys that are drinking all the booze, yeah, throw them in there. Kirk tells Chekhov to hold his fire and the ship gets closer and Kirk finally says fire and they hit the ship and it's badly damaged. Kirk turns to Yahura and tells her to open up a hailing frequency and ask them if they want to surrender. Just then the alien ship explodes. The Andorian spy says they could not surrender. They had orders to self-destruct. So Kirk goes to sickbay and asks McCoy about Sarek and Spock and McCoy is giving Kirk grief says you know you sure make it difficult to have any success around here and Kirk tries to ask him again he's like you know you were rocking the ship so much couldn't you keep it steady and kirk is about to explode when amanda comes in and tells him to follow her so they go into the recovery area spock and sarek are alive and looking good amanda asks sarek if he will thank spock for saving his life and sarek kind of gets a funny expression on his face and he says he did the logical thing you don't thank people for being logical Amanda throws a fit and Spock says, Emotional, isn't she? She has always been that way. Indeed. Why did you marry her? At the time, it seemed the logical thing to do. I love that line. 
Yeah. This is kind of a good father-son bonding moment between those two. Yeah, definitely. So Kirk nearly collapses and McCoy and Chapel get him to the bed. McCoy insists that Kirk needs to stay in sickbay for 10 days, maybe two if he's on his best behavior. And Spock says he will now return to his station and McCoy yells at him to get back into bed. And Kirk kind of looks at Spock and McCoy and he says, I do believe he is enjoying this. And Spock says of McCoy, I've never seen him so happy. Each time Spock or Kirk try to talk, McCoy shushes them and the camera kind of comes up close to him and says, Well, what do you know? I finally got the last word. And that's how the show ends, Dan. That's a great ending, I thought. So, Dana, you have some information about the title of this episode. I looked up the City of Babel. I was trying to figure out how they came up with that name or what it meant. In the story, God disrupted the work of the building of the city by so confusing the language of the workers that they could no longer understand one another because it was a bunch of different tribes and people coming together to build the city. So the city was never completed and the people were dispersed all over the face of the earth. So it made me think that the multi cultures that are in this episode, the multiple different aliens and that struggling to communicate makes one wonder if they were ever able to come into an agreement on Corridan. Oh, it's a great question because that never gets resolved as far as I know in at least the original series. Yeah. Yeah. Once again, people are learning stuff. <laughs> amazing. Yeah. Totally amazing. So Dan, do you want to talk about themes and dilemmas? One of the themes was this idea of rifts that fathers and sons often have. And this goes way back. Literary history, Greek mythology, there was Oedipus who killed his father. In the Christian Bible, Abraham is about to kill his son because God tells him to. A lot of Shakespeare plays have to do with these father and son conflicts. And, you know, even up into modern times with relatively modern times, music, Cat Stevens, the song Father and Son. So these themes are really almost as old as time. What was fascinating to me was how good of a job DC Fontana did with exploring that in this episode episode. I, the writing was brilliant. Yeah, I, I agree. It's uh, I think it's a really well done episode. What about dilemmas or themes for you? I think that, you know, the, the major dilemma is duty. Does that come before family? And then there's also the uh, try and resolve the murder. The passengers that are on board are all almost at war with one another, the way it's described. So there, there's a lot going on. It's one of the things that I really love about this. It's just that there's so much that there's all these uh, dilemmas that they're trying to keep under control throughout the ship. And it's just it's really well done. Dana, what was one of your best parts of this episode? To start with, McCoy just has some great lines in here, and uh, he's featured really well, I think. How about for you, Dan? Do you have any uh, best parts? I think this episode solidifies DC Fontana as the best writer in all of the original series. Wow. I mean, you're talking a show that had Harlan Ellison, Robert Block, and you know many other authors that contributed. So that's, that's high praise. She wrote this episode, and then she contributed to many other episodes, oftentimes uncredited and made those episodes so much better than they would have been. So I really think she was the strongest. How about another best part for you? Spock's decision to not do the operation because of his duty. The way it played out, everything, I was just so impressed with that. It made sense. Yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't just, oh, let's say say there's just a great tension. There was a reason behind it and logic. Do you have another best part, Dan? The way that Nimoy portrayed the Vulcan side of himself 
struggling with the human side and how that impacts the relationship with both his mother and his father. I think his acting super strong in this episode. How about a worst part for you? Even though he's mentioned several times, there's no Scotty. I thought they could have used him, but I think they were running over on budget on this. And so uh, it's one of the reasons why he doesn't appear. So they just cut Scotty? I mean, couldn't they cut a couple of the aliens that they had in there? <laughs> yeah, that's what I would have done. Yeah, I, it was a glaring omission, I think, in this episode of him being gone. How about for you, Dan? Do you have a worse part? The pig masks that the Tellarites were wearing just looks kind of fake to me. Fred Phillips is the man who designed the makeup for the show. He says he took his uh, cue, the Tellarites' makeup, from Sarek's assertion that the species is argumentative. Said, you know, because they were pig-headed. How about another worst part for you? They never say if the spy is the one who killed Gav. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, we never find out, do we? Dana, what happened on this day in history? Dan, this came out on November 17th, 1967. The number one song in the U.S. was To Sir With Love by Lulu. And in the U.K., we have a new number one song. It's Let the Heartaches Begin by Long John Baldry. I thought it was interesting. I was looking at the time slots that were in TV Guide for this date. Playing opposite Star Trek was Gomer Pyle on CBS and Hondo, a uh, Western, on ABC. Last week, I talked about Surveyor 6 landed on the moon and then started taking pictures right away. Yeah. Well, on November 17th, 1967, it became the first man-made object to actually lift off from the moon. Wow. You mean it, did, it just decided to leave? I think they had a program to uh, lift off and it took more pictures from orbit. And where is it now? Alpha Centauri. Oh, I was hoping you'd say Uranus. I, I was setting you up for that one, Dana. Do I try it again? Sure. Where is it now, Dana? Uranus. <laughs> <laughs> That joke never gets old. It's where all probes go to die. They're not dead before they go in. They're definitely dead once they get in Uranus. <laughs> oh, wow. We haven't had any good Uranus jokes in a while. No, we haven't. We And we continue to not have any good ones. <laughs> <laughs> So, Dan, one last thing. Uh, November 16th, Lisa Bonet, American TV actress known as Denise Huxtable on The Cosby Show and star of its spinoff, A Different World, was born in San Francisco. So that's what happened on and around uh, November 17th, 1967, Dan. All right. Should we move on to the counts, Dana? By all means. How about the dead crewman count for this week? There were none that we're aware of. So we're stuck at 36 there. Shirtless Kirk Rip shirt Kirk count. I counted two, so that takes us up to 12. How about the he's dead count? So nobody else died other than the, the spy and the pigman Gav. So we're still stuck at eight. I'm a doctor, not a fill in the blank. Once again, I think it could have gotten one in there, but they didn't. So where are we at again with that one? Six. Six. All right. How about the supreme being count? Nope. None this week, Dan. Stuck at eight. Violation of the Prime Directive. Not that I'm aware of. Yeah, I agree. So we're still at five. Our latest count taking over the Enterprise. Okay, I see that uh, nobody took it over, so I'm saying zero. Great, so we're also stuck at five on that one. Well, Dana, we're not going to be around next week, mostly because I'm not going to be around next week. <laughs> 
I am taking a beer tasting exam for the Cicerone program. A beer Cicerone is kind of like a sommelier for wine, so someone who kind of knows about beer. I mean, I've had enough beer to drink in my life. You'd think I'd know a lot about it. But uh, anyway, we've got I've got this tasting exam next week, so I'm going to have to take the week off. But in two weeks, what episode are we going to be talking about? In two weeks, Dan, we'll be talking about Friday's Child. All right. Well, I had a lot of fun with this episode, Dana. Again, super well written, super well acted, and is always a ton of fun to talk about it with you. Really exciting to be able to talk about it every week. Thanks for doing this. And thanks to our listeners for writing in and letting us know their thoughts on the podcast and the episodes we're working on. Until we meet again, live long and prosper. Thanks once again for listening to Damn It Jim, the podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Please send us an email at dammitjimpodcast at gmail.com or join the discussion on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube. Next week is an encore presentation. In two weeks, join Dan and Dana for the episode Friday's Child. Enjoy the rest of your week. And until we see you again, make sure to live long and prosper. Thank you.